Welcome to the Late City edition of WKCR. This is an interview series led by the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, also known as AC4. It's part of Columbia's Earth Institute. Today, we have an exciting show for you. My name is Meredith Smith, and I'm a project coordinator at AC4, and I'm the host of today's show. And our host today will explore conflict, development, and energy. And I'm delighted to have two special guests with me on the show today. And the first is Debbie Spindleman. Howdy. Hi, Debbie. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And also to be a special host also on the show today. Um, she'll help me with interviewing and having a dialogue with Kevin Johnson. Hey. Hey, Kevin. Debbie Spindleman serves as practice manager for Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, Masters of Public Administration in Development Practice. That program for short is known as MDP. Debbie is a native of the beaches of Southern California and left an early career as a professional surfer to join the world of development practice. She has worked on education, youth, engagement, and employability, also capacity development projects. She's worked in the Dominican Republic, Kenya, Tanzania, and Nepal. She also serves as an independent consultant for the World Food Program and UN Reach on issues of nutrition governance. Debbie holds degrees in anthropology, gender studies, and development practice. Welcome again to the show, Debbie. And um, it would be great if you could tell us more about this development practice. Great question, and thank you again for having us. This is really exciting. Um, to de- dive into development practice, I, I usually start conversationally by kind of asking what whoever I'm talking about knows about development kind of being from Southern California. A lot of people think real estate development, you know, even financial, you know, fundraising for organizations. Development practice that we're talking about here is um, really sort of global poverty alleviation work. It's practice focused. Um, as opposed to theory, to quote Professor Sachs, you know, the, the, the issues that we're dealing with in poverty worldwide right now um, require practitioners. They don't require theorists. They don't require armchair folks, you know, thinking through and tearing apart other theories, but really doing the work um, and getting our hands dirty. So this work is, is throw, kind of runs across a lot of different sectors because, you know, poverty itself um, and is, is incredibly complex, um, you know, that here at AC4 involving education, involving issues of infrastructure, governance, transparency, youth engagement and development. Um, so development practice really kind of includes all of those things and it involves both at the, the governmental level, at the federal government, working with local governments, of course, INGOs and multilaterals, but but really quite a bit more in the in the past few years work within the private sector with entrepreneurs and with social enterprises and basically every everyone working on on social good with a very broad property alleviation end together and as the practice manager you oversee where different students are going to do practice is that right yeah yeah, so the MDP program is, it's a mid-career two-year program at, at Columbia SIPA, and it's, it has students who have typically spent a couple of years working in one of those sectors or within one of those dimensions of poverty and really want to, to kind of broaden their, their understanding. There's obviously a really rigorous classroom component to it over four semesters, but I'm lucky enough to get to direct all of the learning that students do outside the class. Room. So the skill workshops that they need, labs from the summer field placement, they spend 12 weeks in between the two years um, doing a, a pretty in-depth consulting type project outside of New York City for the most part.
part with governments, social enterprise incubators and NGOs around the world. And then internships and capstone workshops, any chance that, that students have to step outside the lecture hall and engage with a real world client on real world issues and really learn by doing that's, that's um, where I get to play. Great. And it's a pleasure to have Kevin on the show with us, who's an alumni of the MDP program, graduate in 2014, and is currently working in the field in Sierra Leone and is working as the Renewable Energy Policy Advisor for EBIS, which is a Danish international NGO, non-governmental organization, and he's working for them on a large renewable energy project in Sierra Leone. Just to give a little bit more background to our listeners about EBIS, EBIS is committed to promoting access to education, influence, and resources in nine different countries across the globe. So Sierra Leone is just one of those. And EBIS has been working in Sierra Leone since 2006, and it is currently working in a consortium with WHH, INFO, ENFO, and COOPI under an EU energy facility project titled Promoting Renewable Energy Services for Social Development, also known as PRESTI, which is being implemented from 2014 to 2018 in Sierra Leone. Sounds like this is really wide scale and a multi-sectoral approach, uh, as Debbie was talking about with what MDP work focuses on as well. So it would be great to hear from you, Kevin, about your work in this. Um, and before jumping into that, let's hear a little bit more about your background. Can you tell us what brought you into this work? Sure. Thanks, Meredith. I guess I started so many international practitioners do with the Peace Corps. Uh, and I was a volunteer in Mongolia working in the education and environmental uh, sector. After that, I expanded into governance and food security in Liberia for about a year. And then I worked in Iraq as an English lecturer for two years. And I found myself working with a lot of uh, Iraqi NGOs who are grappling with development issues that are facing Iraq. And that kind of spurred me into uh, the MDP program. And part of uh, my at MDP uh, in between the two years was uh, working with the Sierra Leone EPA, uh, and that kind of exposed me to the culture and the environment here, which I really enjoyed. Everyone is extremely friendly, very tolerant of new ideas, and I just kind of knew I'd be back someday. It sounds like you've, you've worked in many different countries and, and different sectors as well with, with education and now with education and energy. And um, I'm wondering if you could tell us just a bit about your current position? Like, what is your typical day like there in Sierra Leone? Ooh, uh, <laughs> Jumping a little bit. Good question. Um, so basically, currently a lot of it's kind of coordination. So the initial implementation and planning, uh, coordinating different parties and organizations, letting people know about the project, kind of building up to the uh, activities that are, that are going to be coming up. Um, so it's, it's a lot of talking on the phone, it's a lot of emails, um, a lot of glorious Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, and then every for about a week, every month, I'm off in the provinces uh, in different areas, talking to different communities and kind of laying the foundation uh, for the actual implementation uh, of the solar electric systems, which will be in the next couple of months. So there's a bit of uh, travel, there's a bit of uh, computer, there's a bit of uh, phone. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's everything in there. And the project is focused on um, rural farmers and the rural poor population in particular. Is that right? Yeah, it's, um, I guess, 
you might say it's the ideal MVP project because we're hitting um, a lot of different sectors, uh, a lot of different people. Um, kind of a big part of it is is working with farmers and adding value with electricity onto their work. So, you know, through uh, solar irrigation or adding power to agricultural business centers, and that will help increase their livelihoods. But we're also working, EBIS itself is working heavily in the education aspects. So we're setting up uh, vocational training curricula with centers here and building on students' ability to go into the field and basically operate and maintain the systems that we'll be installing. And then we're also working with entrepreneurs to build their business skills. We're building the value chain of renewable energy here. Um, we're working with governance issues, you know, certain tariffs and policies. Yeah, so it, it really hits a cross-section of areas, including uh, trying to create better governance services. So for hospitals, financial services, and then for schools, building reliable electricity into these areas that are off the grid. So yeah, it's completely multi-sectoral and kind of paragon for MVP, I guess, projects. Very cool. Kevin, quick question for you on that. Um, you've, you've kind of touched on why, you know, why Sierra Leone, why, how, how the, the region had brought you in. But, you know, with the, the multi-sectoral approaches, you had just finished two years of studying food system, public health systems, management, all these, these many, many dimensions. What was it about this project specifically that, that drew you in after graduation? Why energy? I studied a couple of energy courses at Columbia, and uh, I really got interested in energy there. Seeing this job description, it was just perfect. It was kind of the crossroads of education and energy. And so I had my, my longer experience in the education sector and then kind of my newer experience delving into energy. And I thought it would, it would be a great opportunity to kind of uh, continue my career in both those sectors while building kind of on my energy skills. So for me, that's what popped out. And then, of course, with Sierra Leone in my pocket already, uh, I already knew I liked the place and, of course, wanted to return and work there. So it was kind of a, a good fit for, for, for EBIS, for me, and, and hopefully for Sierra Leone so far anyway. Well, that's, that kind of leads to, to our next question. Um, you know, you're, you're working in a post, Sierra Leone is, is both post-conflict, very, very poor, and yet also it's, we all know it's been recently rocked by Ola. How has that outbreak affected your progress on the project? Pretty significantly at first, and then as time went on, less so as it goes. Initially, implementation was supposed to begin in September, but EBIS pulled all the international staff and put us all in uh, Accra in Ghana. And so we're kind of uh, working remotely from Accra. Um, but the the issue for the project was that all educational facilities were closed by mandate from the government and um, all movements were restricted as well. So implementation was not an option. So we basically used the time to plan, research, and coordinate with organizations on the ground. Uh, initially, we we're supposed to have uh, some high-level technical solar electric training last fall. And we had to delay for a year, for example. So that was a, a significant delay. And finally, EBIS let us back in in January. And uh, that's kind of when implementation on the ground for EBIS really picked up steam. But overall, since I've been here, you know, movements have been less uh, restricted. And obviously, the, the case on load is, is going down as well. Um, all good things. But I guess some of the, the impacts on the individual 
it's such a human thing to reach out and shake someone's hand. And so at first it was quite, quite a shock uh, to get used to it. Uh, and then uh, I'm a little worried when I go on uh, leave uh, how I'll react to people when I meet them. But overall, the project hasn't seen you know a significant impact on implementation. We're still we're still trucking ahead. Great. Curious. I mean, you, you spoke a little bit about the extended runway to sort of get things researched and planned. Have there been any other sort of gifts or advantages of running a project like this in this, you know, incredibly fragile setting? Has Ebola ended up, you know, I guess giving you giving you any any particular uh, unexpected gifts or, or advantages in this? Yeah, I mean, having more time to plan is always a gift, um, and so that was that was great because we really got to delve into the details and plan some really cool activities that hopefully will be taking place upcoming. I think, obviously, the the health system has been really hit hard, so they opened up a good opportunity for our installations on uh, on the. When I say our, I'm, I'm speaking of uh, the project as a whole, as a consortium, not necessarily EBITs. Activities per se, it'll have a huge impact on these clinics that are further out in the provinces. You know, for setting up solar energy for vaccine bridges, for example. So eventually, when an Ebola vaccine is, is churned out, these clinics will be able to immediately take them on. Because I mean, currently it, it's looking like Ebola is endemic to the region um, and has been for a long. It just hasn't been advertised as such or realized. So I think there's a lot of opportunity, especially in the health systems. And then, of course, with the economic kind of downturn, with all the restrictions on movements and, and everything else, if we can um, bring electricity access to banks and allow them, you know, more technology to, to link their regional branches, for example, to move money, you know, these are all opportunities, especially since people have been hit pretty hard, both farmers and other livelihoods. So I think, uh, if anything, it, the project is going to have even greater impact than it would have uh, had before. So that's good. I'm so impressed with the flexibility and resilience it sounds like your whole company and EBIS has maintained throughout this. And I wanted to, to pose a question thinking about sustainable peace in, in this. So uh, in terms of long-term peace building, uh, a lot has been said on this podcast and elsewhere about the importance of sustainable development. And Presti's project, if fully executed and when fully executed, looks to improve livelihoods and clean energy access. Can you talk a little about how these benefits roll into sustainable peace in Sierra Leone? That's exactly right. In terms of uh, sustainable development, it's really about you know distributing resources more equally, bringing more opportunities to more people. And the, the war was really about access to resources and the lack of distribution of resources across the country. So in that sense, improving rural livelihoods and uh, helping off-grid areas, getting electricity access will definitely help to contribute to this distribution of resources away from the urban centers and more throughout the country and hopefully bring more opportunities to the provinces because in the end, there's more people living in the provinces than there are people uh, living in urban settings. So bringing opportunities to to them is, is quite important in terms of sustainable peace. Um, and, and Sierra Leone is currently working on um, decentralizing power away from kind of Freetown, where it's 
the capital where it's kind of sits and distributing it more to the provinces and the district councils, which will hopefully contribute to a sustainable peace. And so I guess the idea is to kind of distribute power, but also resources. And in that way, they definitely roll right into the idea of a sustainable peace in Sierra Leone. Absolutely. Debbie, did you want to... Yeah, I was hoping to kind of dive into to some specifics of the Presti project. Reading a bit through the information that you've shared with us, it seems like there's a very interesting community co-funding model. I was hoping that you would you could share with us and our listeners um, a little bit more about that, how it works and how that, that's really played out functionally, you know, any lessons learned. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's... Uh, the EU is really pushing kind of a, you know, an ownership model. So the idea is, for example, in, in the schools that we'll be installing in, the model is to have an entrepreneur attached to the school, and this entrepreneur will basically pay the school for electricity access uh, on a monthly basis. And that entrepreneur will try and um, uh, get his funds back by selling uh, services like phone charging, cold drinks, these kinds of things. And at the same time, the school gets the um, actual access to electricity, so therefore lighting, for example, for night classes, which means longer study periods, a safer environment at night. Teachers have access to electricity so they can lesson plan on computers, for example. It also attracts better qualified teachers if you provide these services in a rural setting. So the idea is that this uh, monthly payment would then be put into a bank account and which would be overseen by EBIS and the school. And this bank account would accrue money over, over the project period, and it would help pay for the replacement of equipment at the end of the lifetime, and also helps pay for the, the, the basic operation of the system, for example. So that's kind of the school model we're, we're about to implement uh, next month. And then we're also doing a, a mini-grid system. We're actually doing three mini-grid systems and we're requiring an 11, 11% contribution from the community before we install. They have to come up with a, a significant portion of money before we'll, we'll even consider them. So the idea is that that, that 11% will cover the, the costs of maintenance and operations for the first year. Um, and then from then on, there'd be prepaid meters and people would be paying for the electricity. So it's the idea is that the, the community taking ownership of the system and then also reaping the benefits as well. We're also doing in the hospitals, for example, we're, we're kind of using them as an anchor and this will assure a, a steady revenue stream to cover the operational costs. And then hopefully we'll expand that out to nearby uh, facilities that could then pay for the electricity in the hospital would also gain revenue as well. And then um, the final model is individual charging stations running these uh, solar technology. We quite haven't quite figured that one out. There's some um, legal implications on our initial system, which is just renting uh, the system from us, but we're still trying to, to work the kinks out. So the idea is uh, really to for these different organizations, individuals, and towns to really take ownership by contributing a significant portion. And, and hopefully that will, that will lay the foundation for long-term operation and maintenance of the systems. And then eventually the replacement of the equipment uh, in a couple of years. That's the hope anyway. Excellent. Excellent. It sounds like it's definitely parts of this are still rolling out. Is there anything that thus far um, has, has gone either just a little differently than expected or has, 
has presented some interesting lessons that about life being a little bit different than plans. Yeah, definitely. It, just taking this entrepreneur model initially, it was it was going to be 125 different entrepreneurs at these different sites, and they would all pay kind of a rental fee for the the equipment, and that money would be put into a centralized fund. Then that fund would be used to cover the costs of any equipment replacements needed, and in that way, we kind of cross subsidize the different uh, entrepreneurs uh, in case something, someone has the bad luck of faulty system before the end of the lifetime, for example. And unfortunately, uh, we ran into some uh, legal challenges. Uh, first of all, the EU won't accept a kind of profit, which obviously makes sense. But we, we initially didn't consider it profit. We considered it kind of a maintenance fund to ensure the sustainability of the project. But unfortunately, legally speaking, the Sierra Leone government sees it as uh, making a profit. So we're kind of hitting on a couple different snags. And we'd have to set up kind of a, another NGO in order to uh, maintain the fund. And eventually we just said, it's too much work. It's taking too much time. We need to come up with a, a new model. So we're currently in the process of um, trying to, to figure out what, what the next best model is in order to ensure the sustainability. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I know that EBIS takes a rights-based approach to development. Has that played out in, in any kind of interesting ways on this project? Have you worked within that, that approach before? I haven't worked with, within the approach before in my own experience, but I, I really like the approach and I really respect it, but it also ends up putting us in some hot water at times. I mean, basically, the, the rights-based approach basically says, for example, that education is a right. So it's not, it's not an option. It's not an opportunity. It's not a privilege. It's a right for every, everyone, basically. And uh, we can't really back down from that in, in any way. And so we're, we're kind of the strong advocates, and people can kind of use us as a shield, and we can, we can advocate for, you know, populations that can't advocate for themselves. So in that sense, it's, I really like the approach. It's very strong, but at the same time, uh, it can put us into hot water, and it's happened uh, a couple times. I'm not sure how much detail I can get into, but um, we had some uh, difficulties in Bolivia a couple years ago. We were a little too outspoken on some issues, and uh, the government um, decided that we weren't seeing eye to eye Kind of running, running in with that question, do you have any other sort of questions or, or issues that you feel like aren't really being asked right now that would make a difference as you face down the next stages in your work? I guess I feel development projects timelines are not long enough, a typical complaint, but um, I feel like uh, one of the main activities that's missing beyond kind of the hardware you know, I guess in this case, you could call it the solar electric systems. And then the software, we're also training the technicians and the engineers to go out and work within these systems. So we're hitting part of the software. Really kind of the, the, the big issue is what people do with what they learn in the classroom. I mean, you know, it's the practical aspect. And I guess this goes back to MVP as well. You know, learning the theory in the classroom. And then once you're actually in the field, uh, realities are are usually quite different and you're, you face a lot of constraints that you might not have thought of from, you know, uh, washed out roads to uh, cultural differences and, and issues like that. Uh, so 
what is missing, I think, is the kind of the last mile in the project, which is beyond the trainings and the workshops. It's really the coaching in the field. It's kind of bringing people from the classroom out into the field and making sure that they apply, you know, the right competency skills, the right attitudes into the practical environment. And so for me, uh, a lot of development projects are missing this last mile kind of implementation activity. It's really working very closely with partners on the ground and, and you know, going through the theories that they've learned and actually applying them into their day-to-day. -day. You can learn a budget, you can learn what it's about, but until you actually implement one in a real setting, you know, it, it's still just theory and something abstract. So really sitting down with people or, or the technicians, you know, in the field, you can, you can set up a quick, you know, you can work in a, a solar laboratory, for example, and set up the, the equipment and then dismantle it. But actually being in the field and in, in a, in an environment that's open to the weather, to communities and, and everything else, very different. So, yeah, I think the one kind of question that's kind of sustainability everyone talks about, and it's, you know, it's the lovely buzzword that everyone loves to hark on. But um, I think the one aspect that is missing in that sustainability is kind of the coaching and, and the other buzzword, uh, the knowledge transfer. So it's not just the knowledge transfer, it's actually you know, working very closely with them in a very practical sense in the field. Excellent. I, lo I love capacity development answers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I would love to follow up with one question, if, if that's all right. Of course. Um, one thing I know that Presti is doing also, it sounds like, that um, came to mind listening to you talk about that is the, the conferences and having international conferences and workshops. I'm wondering if you see that playing into one way to address the need for kind of the last mile, as you say, and um, who the most important people would be to get to those conferences and workshops, if that is what they're kind of intended for. Good question. The so we're yeah we're 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 trying to hit across the spectrum basically. So communities that receive uh, the systems. Uh, we're going to provide kind of trainings and kind of workshops, sensitize them to the, the operations, the maintenance, how, how do you get electricity for, from the sun, all these different aspects of the systems. And in that respect, kind of giving information on the system so it's not just uh, a big metal frame with fancy solar panels on the roof. People actually know what it is, what it's doing, and what it's providing. So kind of sensitizing people kind of first step in that. And then uh, in terms of trainings, we're working with vocational institutes to build their curricula for renewable energy. And so they can, they can start churning out high quality technicians to go into the field and operate different systems as the renewable energy market continues. And then kind of bringing together these different parties and building kind of a coalition who can then advocate for themselves uh, and for people in rural settings as well for better policies, for, for better electricity policies, for rural settings, better renewable energy policies, these kinds of things. And then finally, bringing up to the international level, we're, we're currently trying to coordinate uh, a conference um, for next year, and we're really trying to make it international. So I've been in, in talks with a couple different uh, business alliances, and I think that's really who needs to be... Uh, come into these things. It's really um, the independent power providers who can kind of provide that uh, sustainable aspect for the project. 
for example, with the mini grids at the end, at the project ends, the hope is to, to pass it off to a, an IPP, an independent power provider. And so basically we're, we're, we're subsidizing the system and then we're handing it off to a business platform, uh, which hopefully will be attractive to some, some businessmen, whether Leonean or otherwise, but really to, to bring in, um, you know, the private industry. Uh, that's what Sierra Leone needs. It's been years and years of government projects which haven't been working very well is a giant hydroelectric dam which is off it seems to be off half the time so it's big projects like these that have failed so now it's time to really kind of take the decentralized energy approach and that means bringing in uh, smaller businesses um, so that's kind of who we're going to target for that international conference so we're kind of hitting trying to hit at all levels from basic capacity building um, all the way up to, to entrepreneurs who really want to invest in Sierra Leone. Now, I know a lot of this you probably, you know, have, have figured out on the fly or have figured out since since you've arrived in Freetown and probably in some of your time in, in Accra as well. If you could identify one thing that you really wish you had known before or when you arrived um, in Sierra Leone that it took you far too long to figure out, what would that be? Hmm, that's a tough one. Good question, <laughs> Debbie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> emphasis on, emphasis on, on, on something that took you way too long to figure out and that, that was a huge aha when it happened and, and sort of cleared the way because I'm, I'm certainly something that we've all um, kind of encountered in, in our field work. <laughs> hmm. I am not sure. So what you're saying is the, the Columbia's MPADP program did such a good job preparing <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm, I was fully prepared. <laughs> no, I think there's plenty which I would have known, but Nothing is just popping in my head right now. Cool. No worries. Not to go off on a tangent, but if you had one from your work experience, um, did you have any aha moments like maybe when you were but from your recent work? I know you were just in Nepal in the winter, right? Um, oh, yeah. I don't yeah, know I was... if you're thinking about your own work. I know you're kind of here um, <laughs> was as hosting, but if you if you have experience to that's coming to mind for you. It'd be great to hear that also. I bet our listeners would be interested. Sure, sure. I think one of the great questions, I mean, it's <laughs> it's always harder <laughs> when these questions get turned around back on you. Um, touche, <laughs> Meredith. <laughs> um, I, would, I would say the biggest thing, I was the most junior member um, of, of a team from World Food Program that was there to conduct a capacity gap assessment with the, the government of Nepal and how it's it's a few years into its multi-sectoral nutrition plan. And, you know, it was really a lot of focus on functional capacities. Reading kind of the, the degrees of engagement and how people wanted to engage was an interesting challenge. We did a lot of trips out to, you know, further afield villages and areas outside of Kathmandu with members of our, our host team that we were helping to evaluate and really kind of getting a read on who and when is great to continue diving into these great conversations. If this is something that you want, you know, do, do we want to be having this conversation as we're bumping down a dusty road en route to something? Does everyone want to kind of zone out and stare out the window and look at the, the scenery passing by? Would it be stepping on toes to, to, to try to continue some of these conversations one-on-one? -on -one? Um, negotiating some of the politics and the culture and the, the personalities there was, was involved some, some big lessons learned and a lot of learning and as, as definitely the most junior part of a team that had a lot of really impressive uh, expertise on it. That was, that was one of my biggest takeaways was learning how and when 
these conversations really work best and when they're welcome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mayor? Oh, man. Um, can I say ditto? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> but I feel like, yeah, it's such a nuanced environment working in, in development, especially in, well, I don't know if it's even especially, but it just adds another layer when it's in fragile context, you know, countries with fragile situations. So just when there's diverse people and so many people working on a project, uh, I'm thinking of my work in Jordan and just how also working within a Jordanian foundation, there was still so many people that I would work with on one evaluation project, education evaluation project, for example, that, you know, especially when thinking about larger picture things on the project, it was very tricky to know when, when people would be comfortable sharing real aspirations for what they hoped for in the project and, um, you know, f how to make the conditions for, for that kind of conversation to be possible. Um, and it's, yeah, it's such a, a tricky thing to plan for and so it's I don't know if that really says what I wish I knew beforehand but maybe just knowing that sometimes those conversations are best had outside the office and <laughs> yeah so being open to you know connecting with colleagues and stuff and making time for that outside of the the workplace well that leads me to to a question that I um unless unless Kev you it, once the answer comes, you shout it out. <laughs> um, but this is, I think, a fun, a fun broad program for, or for, broader question for all of us. Um, if somebody wanted to get into this kind of work, particularly with with what you're doing, um, Kevin, what what recommendations do you have for them? Good question. I guess it depends on where you're coming from. In if you're just starting out, there's there's plenty of opportunities in terms of general development. You know. It, there's all sorts of good work being done. I, I guess it depends on if you're interested in humanitarian or, or development work. But yeah, I think there's, there's plenty of opportunity out there um, to get into it generally. I'm just looking on, on websites and things, and then of course, just following what you're really passionate about. So as your career goes on, for example, like me, finding out that I really enjoy energy, and then kind of sticking to that, reading as much as I can, reading websites, new updates, these kinds of things, you know, trying to be as well-informed as possible, and then search for those opportunities. Seek out, don't be scared, I guess. Seek out challenging positions and, and things that might make you uncomfortable. I know I was I was very nervous about the whole Ebola thing because the media was just, uh, it was so, so hyped. I was definitely very scared coming here. And then as soon as I got here, it was, oh, okay, so this is what's really happening on the ground. Yeah, so just kind of challenging yourself, you know, going going for opportunities that you might not otherwise take. Yeah, I guess that's all I get. Kev, I also want to commend you on, you know, even as a student um, in a very well-supported program where a lot of these, you know, applied experiences are, are, you know, lined up for you to a certain extent. Um, I recall that you were incredibly entrepreneurial about the sort of projects that you got engaged with, your summer placement and beyond. Can you Can you talk a little bit more about kind of, you know, working within a supportive environment to find these things, but also, you know, taking the initiative and putting your name out there and putting yourself out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Glenn had this opportunity. Should I Glenn? I don't know. Um, the, the program had an opportunity that came up uh, that was mentioned once, and it really piqued my interest. And that was the Sierra Leone working 
with the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And so the opportunity was kind of already set up. It was just there for, for the taking. And uh, I was working in uh, geographic information systems, which I was familiar with, but certainly not an expert. And so I started taking online courses and really getting into it and digging deeper. And yeah, eventually I went and um, had a great time. It was a great opportunity. And so uh, MDP really set up the opportunity for me, but I had to, to really go the last mile and ensure that, you know, I was qualified and for the opportunity and that I would do a professional job. And then post-graduation, I mean, I guess, like all of us, just the, uh, the application grind and, and that whole business. But yeah, using as many opportunities as you can, your networks and, you know, from LinkedIn to ReliefWeb, DevX, trying to highlight all the resources you have and then hitting them all and not just once, but continually and daily and trying not to uh, get too down when things don't happen because the very next day something might happen. Yeah, so yeah, patience and perseverance and using all your resources. Fantastic. Going back to that, the, the earlier question and kind of reframing it a bit, in terms of your career in development, um, particularly in, in fragile states, which you've got some, some pretty great experience in, what do you wish you had known when you arrived into this kind of career that it took you far too long to figure out? There's a lot of politics to navigate. Politics, uh, I mean, especially within fragile state context, depending on the context, obviously, but emerging from the Civil War, although it was you know, 12, 13 years ago, the effects still reverberate across this nation, whether it's you know, the lack of infrastructure still or you know, just the, the stories you hear in dealing with the psychological consequences of the war uh, on, on the people. So um, kind of navigating these different uh, politics within that and, and you know, who, who did what during the war and, and, you know, navigating it in uh, modern circumstances and how they stand in the community, how they're actually, you know, some of them are still revered and still hated. And, you know, it's, it's a whole complex web of knowledge, really, and I'll never understand it um, fully. But um, I guess just understanding that it's tread lightly through the politics of it, especially with the implementation of the project and trying to understand the different power dynamics. And it's a lot more complicated and complex than I ever would have thought. So I guess for me, knowing better coping mechanisms and how to deal with the politics and how to navigate these treacherous walls.